0: Thanks for joining us for the final podcast in our Sample of Solos series. This week, we offer you a cornucopia of four very different stories. And if you support this podcast on Patreon, you can access Behind the Scenes content. This month, we have a special interview with the directors from Tales of Poe. Our first story is, What's My Deadline? Written and performed by Dorothy Milne. When I grow
1: up, I want to be a writer. I'm 63, so I'm hoping I grow up soon. When I sit down to write, I need a little treat. I need a little reward for sitting down to write. A real writer would have a cigarette and a scotch. That's what a real writer would have. But I don't like scotch. And I don't smoke anymore. I bet I could write if I wasn't hungry. I should make a little something, keep my strength up and my mind keen. Now, I don't know how I can write in this messy apartment. Who could write in such a pigsty? I'm not gonna be able to focus until I clean everything. If you ever notice that my place is neat and sparkly, you'll know there's some deadline I'm trying not to think about. I know there are artists out there who are self-starters. There are artists who produce work even though no one is making them do it. My dad was that kind of artist. He was a painter. He'd come home from a long day at work, eat dinner, and then say, well, I guess I better go paint. Like someone was making him, but no one was. He was painting because he wanted to. Or even when he didn't want to, something inside him was making him do it. He always had painting gear in the car so that he could just pull over when inspiration struck and sketch a a broken-down bicycle or a fascinating patch of weeds When I was a kid, whenever we had guests over, my mom would whisper, keep an eye on your father. Because sometimes he would disappear. He would run down to the basement to get an extra chair and he wouldn't come back. He had passed his workstation where that landscape was not turning out as he hoped. And it's not that he'd reject the party. He'd forget it was up there. He had no reason to be in the basement, but to fix the sky. Okay, I get that. I have felt inspiration and the pull that just takes you from wherever you are. I have dropped out of conversation at the diner to dig in my bag for a pen and make some notes on the paper napkin. But to be honest, I don't experience inspiration unless I have a deadline coming up. Unless it's in the back of my brain that I had better come up with something or I will be letting everyone down. But my dad could say, I guess I better go paint, and then do it. No deadline. I know there are writers like that too people that have that thing that drives them and makes them create. I don't have that thing. I understand how writers produce their second book or play or article or essay. It's because they are now being pushed by external forces. I read about when Douglas Adams wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Apparently, he was hiding from his publisher and had blown past several deadlines, and the publisher called and said, just roll out the page that's in the typewriter and bring it over with everything else you've got. Do that today or I'm coming over. Now that I understand. One of the many things that is wonderful about theater is the deadlines. You are responsible to the team to meet those deadlines. If you're acting or directing or writing or designing for a show, then it's going to happen. If you're ready or not, if it's good or not, You can only explore and experiment and start over and delay decisions for so long and then you just have to do something because the audience is coming. I love that about theater. Because with any creative project, you can always make it better. But better is the enemy to finishing. Better is the opposite of done. But a solo project... Or the part of any project that starts solo, that's so hard. For years, I thought I wanted to write, but I never finished anything, by which I mean I'd barely start. I'd write a page or two, and it would suck, so I'd stop. And then one day, a woman I knew slightly but admired greatly called out of the blue and asked if I did solo performance work, and I said, yes, I do. That was a lie. But this was before the internet, so she had no idea I was lying. She said, that's great. There will be four of us. The director will call you to start setting up meetings. With that project, I learned the most valuable thing. It was not that I was too lazy to write. It was that I was afraid that what I wrote would be terrible. As soon as the fear of failure was replaced with the greater fear of reprisal for backing out of what I'd agreed to do, I had no trouble producing work. All I need is the threat of public humiliation if I don't meet the deadline. So in my younger days with my storytelling group, we would put out the press release and then write the show. Or I'd sign a contract to rent the theater and then we'd write the show. Because putting my personal finances at risk... I have also found motivating. If you're a self-starter who has no trouble making your own deadlines, my hat is off to you. But for people like me, those of us who aren't real writers, this is my recipe for producing work. Just put yourself under pressure that's out of your control. You don't have to rent a theater. Just gather a group of like-minded friends to meet every couple weeks and read work to each other for feedback. No one leaves without reading something. If you can't make the meeting because of stomach flu, you're out of the group. You don't have to be a self-starter. You do have to be willing to put yourself out there in traffic. What? Yes, I'd love to write a piece for Lifeline on the air.
0: What's my deadline? Next up, Mixtape,
2: written and performed by Amy Sumter. My friend Sabrina had a cassette mixtape in high school that was only women, powerful, raging women. Women who screamed into their microphones, played their guitars like badasses, owned their space, and dared to enter the realm of the angry woman. They also entered my soul. These women screamed about things I felt but never knew I could also scream about, like the patriarchy. In high school, I had no idea how mad I was about it because I didn't understand what it was. I just knew I hated it. These powerful women opened up my eyes to a world where I could say no to unrealistic beauty standards. These women were PJ Harvey, Seven Year Bitch, and Bikini Kill. We would drive around in Sabrina's old blue Camry and scream out lyrics. I had never heard anything like it before. I always listened to the radio. I thought I knew what was cool. I watched MTV, you know, when they actually played music videos. I would stay up late to watch Alternative Nation and 120 minutes. I knew about some pretty cool bands. I had a subscription to Columbia House and BMG, not to brag. I knew about bands like Blur and Rage Against the Machine, Beastie Boys, and a few female-fronted bands here and there. But this tape was a gateway into the Riot Girl spelled G-R-R-R-L, movement. A movement I might have been a little too young to fully experience, but a voice I identified with in ways I didn't understand yet. This tape showcased a lot of voices I had never heard before. The radio was not going to introduce me to them, and after each song, I would pummel Sabrina with questions. Who was that? What song was that? Where are they from? Sabrina had a photographic memory. She remembered everyone's name. That's Bikini Kill, and a hush would fall over the Camry. Everyone in the car knew. Bikini Kill wasn't fucking around. Bikini Kill were important. Bikini Kill were not only cool as hell, but also the forefront of the riot girl movement. Sabrina told us they're based out of the Pacific Northwest area, and that was some cool shit back in the 90s. They were friends with Nirvana. Kathleen Hanna is their lead singer. Sabrina would school us. Kathleen Hanna is the one who gave Kirk Cobain the title for Smells Like Teen Spirit. She's a badass. She was also known to scream at Bikini Co concerts, Girls to the front! And the boys in the crowd would have to listen to her. All the girls would move up to the front. She made it safe for girls to go to punk rock shows. I would make mental notes to check them out the next time I was at Tower Records. You know I was a big fan of their listening station, and it didn't hurt that Tower always had the hottest dudes working there. Swoon. But back to this tape. Every time we went anywhere and Sabrina was driving, that tape was in the deck. When I went away to college, Sabrina was a year younger than me, but she would drive up to school to pick me up so we could drive out to the city and see shows. We caught corn at the Aragon Brawl Room, that's what we called it in high school, and a little known group called Limp Biscuit opened for them. They threw out cassette demo tapes to the crowd and Sabrina totally caught one. Throughout college, Sabrina and I would exchange mixtapes, always trying to find the coolest songs to share with each other, but also introduce bands to one another that maybe the other person didn't know about and Sabrina was 100% better at finding the dopest bands around. She would always decorate the plastic case and the cassette tape. Glitter and tiny stars would be all over my dorm room, but I didn't care. It was the 90s, and glitter was dope. It still is. My Walkman would always have a new mixtape in it that was bedazzled in some way. After college, the tradition continued We waited outside of the Riv after a British band played in the dead of a Chicago winter. I had heard them on a trip to Scotland the summer before and was blown away. It felt so great to introduce her to a band for once. We waited with our friends without our jackets on for over an hour outside just to meet them. We, of course, left our jackets in the car because we didn't want to be uncool. This little-known band, Coldplay, not exactly punk rock, but I have to admit, I still love them. First Chicago stop ever, and they were supposed to play the Metro, but the show was so popular, they moved it to the Riv. And while we waited in the freezing temps, my other friends started singing, I have no hands. I have no hands for you, you know, because of hypothermia. But waiting paid off. We got to meet the band and get their autographs. I hugged Chris Martin way before Gwyneth ever knew who he was. And this was in the early 2000s. Cell phone cameras were not a thing, and autographs were so cool. Sabrina's grandma even drove us once to the Blue Line so we could see a show in the city. Side note, Sabrina and her grandma RIP, had matching tattoos, and her grandma used to take her kids to see bands like The Doors back in the day. I aspire to be that kind of mom. I moved into the city, and even though we didn't see as many shows together as we once had, we would still meet up here and there. We still made each other mixtapes, but they eventually became mixed CDs, and then life happened. The CDs sort of stopped. I missed the mixtapes. How do you discover music when the Tower Records listening station is no more? How do you find things you like in a world of algorithms that don't make sense to you? Sabrina had the idea to create a Spotify playlist that we continue to add songs to. I still call it a mixtape because that sounds better to me and it's a force of habit, but also get off my lawn. All I want in life to this day is to receive a mixtape from a hot dude He doesn't even have to decorate it. Sabrina and I still see each other at shows. A few years ago, I found out Kathleen Hanna was in a new band and they were playing Riot Fest. Sabrina and I tried to find each other in the mass of people. We were separated by maybe 10 feet, but in concert feet, that is worlds apart. I was able to get real close to the stage. It was 2016, I had just walked out of a toxic work environment and I had nothing lined up. I had $200 to my name and I was scared. I was angry, I didn't understand why my life was falling apart or how bad my luck was about to get. I literally needed to riot at Riot Fest. And watching Kathleen play and own the stage and scream into the microphone was one of the most therapeutic, cathartic moments of my life. It was a gorgeous day in September, not a cloud in the sky. And for their final song, a familiar drumbeat began to play. Rebel Girl by Bikini Kill. I grabbed the stranger next to me who was also grabbing for me. And we jumped up and down holding one another, me and the stranger. We both screamed at this moment we both were experiencing. I had never seen Bikini Kill live. I had only read about the riot girl movement. I had only raged to them in my friend Sabrina's car and now it was live and in front of me and my friend who had introduced it to me was just feet away. At first I was screaming with joy, jumping up and down, and then out of nowhere, I was sobbing. It was one of the greatest moments of my life. I didn't hide my ugly cry. I never thought I would hear that song live. I never thought I would get that moment. My life was literally falling apart, but in that glorious chaos, I was free. As soon as the show ended, I found Sabrina. I was a little embarrassed I had cried. I told her, and she said, I cried as well. But I was eating, and I didn't want to be the crying girl who was eating, and we laughed. In college, I had asked Sabrina, Can I borrow your girl tape? Sabrina gave me a side eye, knowing full well that I was going to keep it. Yeah, craps, I already have all the songs on CD, and I still have that tape. I'll never get rid of it.
0: The next story is London with Clark. Written and performed by Jay Lynn. The central
3: building in the Tower of London is the imposing White Tower. In times past, it was a residence, a prison, and an armory. Presently, it contains any number of things that a four-year-old child might find intriguing. Armors, cannons, shields, hands-on exhibits that let a child feel the heft of a sword or tension of a longbow. In 2010, when I was touring the White Tower with our then four-year-old son, Clark, he was most interested in the guard robes, or 11th century toilets. In the White Tower, the guard robes are tiny rooms built into the outer walls. There's a stone seat with a hole over a chute to the outside. You can walk into one of the guard robes and look through the hole, now covered in plexiglass. I told Clark that this is what people who lived in the castle used as a toilet. Clark asked, people peed and pooped there? Yes. He looked through the hall to the view of what is now a tidy green lawn. Where did it go? Just down that hole and out the wall. Kind of gross, huh? But how did it get to the sewer? There weren't any sewers. There weren't any sewers? No. And that seemed to be the end of the guardrail conversation. Later that afternoon, we were changing trains at the Westminster Underground Station to return to our hotel. This requires a descent of more than 100 feet by a number of escalators. Clark looked around and said, we're really far underground. I think we're down by the sewers. Yes, I said, I think you're right. Before we were parents, my husband Greg and I frequently traveled, often tagging along on one another's business trips or cashing in travel points for vacations. When we adopted Clark as an infant, we decided to do the same, more or less. So Clark's first trip overseas was to Amsterdam at 15 months, and his second trip was to London when he was two. Clark is now 14, and we've made several trips to London with him. It is a beloved destination, and each trip is a combination of visiting old favorites and making new discoveries. When we're not there, he likes to read stories set in England and the history of England. We have, of course, cultivated this interest, but to some degree, he owns that attachment himself. When Clark was eight, we made plans to meet Greg in London after he finished three weeks of work in Europe. Clark and I traveled to Eton and Windsor. I had two reasons. One, I thought Clark might enjoy Windsor Castle, and two, after an overnight flight to Heathrow without Greg, I looked forward to a quick and easy cab ride. It's like going from O'Hare to Park Ridge, but more charming, and with a castle. We stayed at the Crown and Cushion, a pub and inn on High Street in Eton that has been in operation since 1753. There is not a square corner or level floor in the building. The stairs are steep and uneven, and the rooms are a bit cramped and quirky. Clark and I loved it. Most of the first day was for the castle. Clark observed that the queen must be in residence at the time because the royal standard, rather than the Union Jack, was flying above the castle. Tourists can visit the stateroom, St. George's Chapel, and multiple gift shops, and the castle provides a changing of the guards without the crowds of Buckingham Palace. We also learned that we could attend Evensong in the chapel after tourist hours. There was no doubt that going to Evensong would be perfect for me, and possibly tolerable for Clark. He agreed when I told him there would be no sermon. A great thing about services in a large Anglican church on a weekday is that the congregation can often sit in the stalls behind the choir. Before the service started, I pointed out the seat the queen would use if she were attending and that no one else ever uses. So why isn't she here? He whispered. I don't know. We know she's home. Shouldn't she be in church? I don't know. Maybe she takes Friday evenings off. After the service, I thanked Clark for indulging me. He said, sure, it was okay. It helped that we returned to the Crown and Cushion for fish and chips with malt vinegar. The rest of our time in Windsor and Eton was about the River Thames, which runs between the two towns. We fed the swans, took a tour boat, rented a rowboat, and walked along the river. Clark stopped to pet a dog, just like Greg does whenever he sees one. The owners were sitting with their dog on the banks of the Thames where they had docked their long, narrow canal houseboat. After a bit of chatting, they invited us in for a tour. When Clark talks about this particular trip... These are the details he recalls, not the castle or the church. It's all about the river and the boats and the inn. When we later celebrated Christmas in London, Clark asked if we could spend a couple of days in Eton because he thought Greg had to experience the crowning cushion. For someone who lives out of a suitcase a good share of the year, The charms of an 18th century inn are fleeting. But Greg indulged him. I think when we first became parents, we had high expectations of traveling with Clark. Travel would be about sharing favorite places and hoping he would love them as much as we do. It has been a little bit like that. But perhaps it has been more about learning to see what Clark loves and what he wants to share with us. During that trip to London when Clark was four, he and I went to Westminster Abbey one afternoon. It's perhaps not the best place for young children, even when you use a children's guide, which suggests you count the lions. You cannot begin to imagine how many lions. We spent only a short time in the church itself. As is our family tradition, when we visit a church, we lit two candles, one for Greg's mother, Lois, the only grandparent Clark has not known, and one for his namesake, my maternal grandmother, Eva Clark Johnson. Before we left the Abbey, we visited the college gardens. Most tourists don't get this far. It's a secluded place with simply designed garden beds and lawns, the former site of gardens used by monks for growing medicinal herbs and food. It is completely enclosed by abbey buildings and blocks out the noise of the city. We walked around. We sat quietly on a bench. Clark wandered a bit by himself while he looked at one of our London guidebooks. When we left Westminster Abbey that afternoon, we were walking hand in hand. I said, thank you for coming with me here today. This is my favorite place. Clark replied, this is my favorite place,
0: too. Our final story is Zoom's Giving,
4: written and performed by Claudia Riley. Let's face it. Thanksgiving is the only holiday where you don't have to do anything fun for kids. You cook food, you eat. The grown ups rule. They watch football, they argue about the past. It's a holiday for old people. What's in it for the young? Nothing. The kids set the table, they have to wear fancy clothes and kiss the elderly even the ones who scare them. They get lectured to act nice. No fireworks, no presents, no candy, just dinner. And all the adults droning on and on about the past and either crying or yelling by the end of the night. The only way you're included as a kid is to be told you're taller than last year or maybe that you look like a relative who died young, or worse, went insane. As a child, I could hardly wait to leave the table and go down to the basement of my Uncle Bill's and Aunt Jean's house to kick balls into laundry baskets with my sisters and cousins. We danced to John Lennon's instant karma I want to hear which of my dead grandparents was worse. Ma thought the radio was giving her messages to kill everyone. Oh, yeah? Well, Dad trained a squirrel to bite his own children. Or whether my mom was beaten less because she was a girl. Even in my teens and 20s, Thanksgiving held no magic for me. Was I moved when my Lithuanian relatives realize they still understood the language of the country where their parents had once lived? No. Did I feel amazed when everyone spoke about World War II and the dead and sang these beautiful, sad songs from another era? Well, maybe a little, but I didn't know what to say or do other than turn to my cousins and whisper They're all stuck in the past. Meanwhile, we, the young, were bursting with life and going to explode out of this Chicago basement like rocket ships roaring into a future of beauty, fame, wealth, passion. A life up, up, up up and far beyond candied yams and green bean casseroles and amoeba-like jellied cranberry sauce. Now I'm a parent of grown sons. I'm one of the old people who love Thanksgiving. I could hardly wait for my kids to come home, one with a wife, one with a fiancé, and the third in college. I planted mums to make the house beautiful. I could see all of us making pumpkin pies, pecan pies, and my youngest making his famous key lime pies. I watched the leaves burning red outside as the virus kept getting worse and worse and TV announcers shouted, no one should go home this year. Oh, shut up, CNN. I have combat plans. I'm going to open windows with a fire going and everyone socially distanced with masks on. Did you get the call, too? You know, that call. Hey, Mom? Listen uh I've been thinking, and maybe it's better I don't come home this Thanksgiving, what with you and dad being a, uh, well, you know, on the older side. I remember feeling virtuous during the shutdown in spring. I loved being a moral, decent citizen just by staying home, shopping on Amazon, doing takeout. But this, This Thanksgiving on Zoom was hard. Seeing the kids, but not touching them, not reaching out, not getting to breathe them in. Just me making pies, no one laughing, no one making me gasp with a piercing or a tattoo. It was hardest for us the on the older side people, the ones who love the food and conversation and telling stories about our crazy relatives, those relatives whose holiday recipes written in cursive on index cards we inherited after they died. And most of all, we love seeing the young We were proud Americans this Zoomsgiving. We gave up our families for one year and had to talk to them on computers with everyone's voices a little out of sync, which is how our hearts feel now. Just a little out of sync, a little sad and lost and missing everyone
0: Tonight's episode was directed by ensemble member Dorothy Milne, produced by Lifeline Theatre and Sound Concept Media. Thank you for listening to Sample of Solo. We look forward to you joining us virtually for the 24th annual Filet of Solo Festival in February. Tune in to On the Air in December when we'll celebrate the holidays with another four-part series featuring L. Frank Baum's unique Christmas tale, The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus, adapted by ensemble member Christopher Hainsworth. As always, don't forget to subscribe to On the Air wherever you listen to podcasts. You can support our podcast on patreon.com, backslash Lifeline Theater.